0: Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Megan Asaka, an historian, author, and assistant professor of history at the University of California, Riverside. Megan is the author of a new book, Seattle from the Margins, and is here to provide some insights and also to invite us to a book event on the weekend. Megan Asaka, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, really, this is my uh, good fortune, my pleasure that we're able to have this conversation about this new book, Seattle from the Margins, Exclusion, Erasure, and the Making of a Pacific Coast City. Uh, it, it's an amazing piece of writing and uh, really is so insightful, and so critically important, well, just overall. But now it seems to just really be the time for it to be here and for us to be learning some of this history.
1: Well, I'm so glad that you are saying that. I I did feel like, yes, it's, it's a, a history from, you know, the very early origins of Seattle, and I stop at, you know, right at World War II. But I do think it continues to have relevance into the present. And that's kind of what I was imagining when I wrote the book, that it's, yes, it's about an early period in Seattle history, but that period is so crucial to understanding so many of the present-day issues um, that we still see in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest.
0: Exactly. And, you know, there were bits and pieces that I felt somewhat aware of, well, uh, which is World War II with the bombing of Pearl Harbor and then the displacement, the internment camps for the Japanese citizens and residents, but many were citizens and were displaced. So we kind of know this, but the, but there's so much more that pro really led up to that and is all enmeshed in that.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I so I end the book actually um, kind of around... You know, 1940, 1941. Um, so I don't get into the war years very much at all, but it definitely, I hope, sheds light on uh, Japanese American history in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, and um, helps to explain, I think, how it is possible that this whole population of people was over 10,000 in Seattle by 1940. Could be removed, you know, from the city in that way um, because the incarceration as, um, is often told as a national story, and yet the local context is so important. So I wanted to highlight that um, Japanese uh, immigrants and Japanese Americans, by 1941, by Pearl Harbor, were had played a really important role at one time in the economy, and that role had kind of diminished. They no no longer had. An important place in the in the economy of Seattle in the larger region and so that's one of the reasons why I think they were removed and why they kind of you know were displaced is because they were seen as ex- expendable by the city um, and so Pearl Harbor and you know executive order 9066 in 1942 was kind of this you know obviously um, it was like a flashpoint I think in a larger and longer um, transformation of Japanese Americans over time. But certainly by 1941, they didn't have the economic power that they once did and so weren't as important to the city anymore.
0: Although I think we could argue with the work that was still being done and and maybe it was the, even the valuable farmland that they possessed and that they worked on that was um, the reason for their being expendable, basically.
1: Yes, for sure. And I think that, um, you know, there were laws in place um, at state and uh, federal level that had really tried to prevent um, Japanese people in the U.S. from becoming citizens, for example, from owning property. And so, um, or to make it very difficult for them to own property. Some of them were managed to. But there were many laws in place. Um, starting in you know the early 20th century that were really t- aimed at trying to prevent them from becoming permanent members of society and fr- from becoming um you know part of the united states and so um, that's part of the story too for sure and also the economic um, motivations that people had in the city who could take over them some of the you know businesses that they did run um, and take over those so that was also a kind of motivation i think too among people um, you know, kind of local residents who were seeing it as an opportunity to maybe take over a business for very little money uh, to buy up farm equipment, you know, that was being sold in the frantic days, I think, um, right before uh, the mass removals really happened. So there was that, too, as well. You're you're definitely right um, about that. Yeah. So we,
0: ha- we have to face what was going on, and you help us to do that because uh, while we kind of know it, I think it's just kind of, oh, in the back of our minds, but really, what right now, we still see this whole struggle that we have. It's more than a struggle, but that that goes on regarding uh, migrant workers and how we treat people that are doing a service we really need and want, and yet the way that we treat human beings.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge part of the story um, that I wanted to highlight is how um, this is also a story of um, people who are, you know, needed to do the work to make the economy, you know, possible to actually literally build the city, physically build the city um, you know, to be the agricultural workforce, to be the lumber workforce, and yet all the barriers that were put in place to prevent them from becoming part of the city, and they were constantly being told and treated as if they were troublemakers, as they were as if they were undesirable, um, and they were segregated in very in many ways, and tried. You know, there were efforts to keep them away from you know the permanent sort of white residents who lived um, in different. Areas of the city, so that is really also a story of um, that we see still today. I mean, in kind of a different form and with different groups, but how you know this economy of our country and capitalism really requires um, you know workers, and yet those workers are constantly being told that they are undesirable and they are you know um, segregated. And they're told that they're not welcome to become part of the country. That is definitely still, um, I mean, we see that, of course, you know, today. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, I'm glad you picked up on that, because that was definitely a theme that I wanted to highlight um, with the book as well. Um, This theme of labor and of capitalism and um, how workers who have really done the hard work of building the city aren't often, Um, you know, seen as being worthy of being included into urban society. And they're also like written out of the historical memory of the city in terms of who we think about, right? When we think about the important figures in early Seattle history, it's not the migrant workers, right? The ones who actually contributed to building the city. It's the kind of like, you know, the typical sort of pioneers, quote quote, unquote pioneers and, and other important figures. And yet the ones who were important in doing the work often get written out of that
0: exactly because if they were not here to to do the lumber work to build the railroads to to do the uh, the gardening to plant and to reap how would those who are the big names really have been able to accomplish anything oh
1: exactly yeah that's that's the thing and yet we we don't I feel like in especially in Seattle history that aspect of it is never highlighted as much. Um so I felt like that was a really a missing piece of the story. And because Seattle's workforce was so migratory, I think that that contributed to um you know a kind of forgetting of them later on by historians and there was also an effort by the city in the 30s and 40s which I talk about in the later chapters of the book to actually just displace them and to kind of do these, they were called like slum clearance projects. So the city would come and declare a certain area a slum and then bulldoze it and just displace the residents. So that happened a lot too. So there was a kind of like deliberate, I think, attempt to displace the workers and just to kind of like physically erase them from the city as well. Um, yeah. So that was, that was um, also part of it, but I think it's, you know, the book was really trying to, You know, call attention to not only this like history of of these workers and this workforce and the important role that they played in building the city, but also why we don't remember them as much and why they aren't um, a group that we tend to um, that we tend to remember, that we tend to value in our collective, you know memory of the city and and how we think about Seattle history. And I'm saying we here because I am from Seattle, too. Right. Um, so I'm talking also as a Seattle resident and someone who grew up in Seattle. And I, you know, wor- I worked as a public historian in Seattle for many years. So I also understand um, the kinds of stories that Seattle tells about itself. And the book, in a way, was an effort to kind of provide an alternative story.
0: Right, because you grew up seeing that kind of disconnection between what was being told and what was in the history books and what you knew was your experience and your family's experience.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was the original motivation of the book was to... I was always interested in history, I think. Like, my... Um, both my Japanese-American side, you know, and I was always interested in, in that story as well as on my mom's side. She's a white woman from Iowa, but her, her mom and grandmother. So my grandmother and great grandmother were also really interested in family history too. So I kind of got it on both sides. And for me though, you know, as I got older, I was really interested in history. I was interested in my family history, but then I would never quite see, you know, my Japanese American family story, like what they went through reflected in, you know, in the, not even in the historical scholarship, but just in the kind of public narratives at museums and news articles and, You know, these kinds of um, sites that you go to where, you know, you learn about history, these public history sites, I just, I felt that there was something missing in terms of the place of Japanese Americans and their removal from the city. And then this idea that Seattle was somehow a progressive city that Mm. that wasn't as bad as other cities when it came to race and that, you know, Seattle kind of existed outside of this fraught racial history of other cities and that we were a progressive, open-minded city and that 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 never sat well with me. And so when I was young, I was just always kind of wondering why that was. And I obviously noticed that I felt like that wasn't true necessarily, but I was curious in that disconnect. And, um, so that's what motivated my interest in telling a different kind of Seattle history. But I think the topic of the book, which is more about, it's about that, but it also tells the story of a particular workforce and groups of people who have been written out That specific focus came a bit later on in the research process. But, yeah, I think the motivation for me was definitely to write a different kind of history of Seattle, write a history of the city that I think reflects more of, you know, people who aren't often talked about in Seattle history and to kind of really – subvert the idea that Seattle is a kind of progressive and open-minded city. And to really ask, not only is that true, because it's, you know, I mean, every city in the U.S. has a very fraught racial history, but kind of like, why is it that we still believe that? And um, what is that obscuring, right? When we when we sort of hold on to that idea, what, is, what kinds of histories is that obscuring? What kinds of you know, tensions and things that aren't so great about Seattle history. I feel like that really obscures those moments, too. So it's really important to just, I think, that's where history in particular is important. Um, you know, sometimes it's not difficult or sometimes it's difficult to hear. And there's definitely like moments of you know violence in the book that I talk about. But it's important that we know about these things, too, in order to fully understand the complexity of um, Seattle history.
0: Uh, yes, definitely. Because if we don't acknowledge and see the truth of what has gone on, yet if we're calling this a progressive city and we desire that, then unless we're really honest, we can't get to really
1: authentically being that. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's right. That's that's exactly right. And that's kind of what the book you know, what the book talks about and also how I feel myself as a historian. You know, I think that history is not just about the past, but it's also about the present. And, you know, it's this kind of like it's this relationship between past and present. And we're just really, how can we function um, as a city if we're not aware, fully aware of our past and we can't actually face some of the things that are in our past, um, which aren't so great. Right. And so I think that it's really crucial um, to have a critical history and to have a critical eye on the past in order to kind of understand how we got here in the first place and then how we go, what what we do from here. And that's kind of, you know, I teach history at the college level. And that's like the message I give my students really is that, yes, you're learning about the past, but we're also, you know, learning about how the past shapes the present. And so in that way, I think history can be very empowering for students. I think a lot of the students come into history thinking it's about memorization and about like presidents, learning presidents' names and, you know, that kind of thing. But Mm. I think, you know, history can actually be very empowering as well. And so I try to teach, um, I try to teach history that way, like this is going to help you make sense of the world. This is going to equip you with certain, you know, um, with ideas and skills to be able to understand the present and to be able to like shape the future. That's the other thing about history. History is very future oriented as well. I think it can be. It's not always, but it can be. So I'm really trying to, I think, shift how my students and also, you know, as I write in the book how we tend to think about history is something that's kind of like dead in the past. History is definitely not dead. And in the past it's, 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 it's present. It's in, you know, Seattle and the way that Seattle is structured, you know, North South, the kind of racial segregation that I talk about in the book. I mean, it's still here. It's still in the city. It's still the way that, you know, the city is divided and, you know, that's a concrete example, I think, of how going back to that early period in history, we can see how much it's it's still connected to the present.
0: Exactly. And it's important to learn this because if we only start from today, such as myself, having moved to the city, well, it's been several decades now, but thinking of it in those terms of it being this kind of beacon city of a progressive city, but then, you know, digging down and seeing some of the not so pretty parts of it, it's important to know so we can, we can't undo that, but we can certainly learn and, and improve so that we do what we can to change those barriers.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also helpful to kind of like learn, like lessons from the past, like what didn't work, you know, and to not repeat those. That's very like even just from like a policy perspective, from like the city, you know, itself, the city of Seattle. From a policy perspective, you can actually go back. There's case studies in my book where I talk about urban planning, and I talk about the fire department, and I talk about you know the housing authority, and I actually talk about some of the you know moments when they really I think you know made mistakes when they were you know, targeting the wrong people when they were, you know, operating out of fear and um, they were targeting certain people, right? And so I think that there's also, hopefully, um, you know, some actually concrete things in the book that can help people learn just from a policy level about, you know, this is not what to do. Because <laughs> some of this, you know, the city uh, the city of Seattle, is like municipal government, doesn't come off looking very good in the book, and that's but that's an important lesson I think for you know city officials too is to like be able to look back and say oh well you know we had these good intentions to build Yesler Terrace which is the last chapter of my book the public housing project and I talk about how Yesler Terrace you know there was no racial segregation sort of named in you know they did, the people the housing authority that operated it never said like this is a segregated space. And yet they imposed policies that made it segregated in practice, so you know they only let people live there who were legally married, who were u s citizens, you know, and they handpicked people according to you know if they adhered to certain um to certain you know they had to be good housekeepers and they had to have you know um there were certain standards that people had to uphold that resulted in a population of Yesler Terrace that was almost exclusively white. And so that's a moment where you can actually look back and say, this is how, you know, know, this racial segregation at Yesler Terrace kind of was envisioned in, you know, 1939, 1940. Like, let's not do that again. Like, let's actually look at this concrete example and we can actually change (laughs) how we approach these things um, today. So I actually think it's also not just about history in general, but it's, I think, you know, important just even from a policy level, just specific policies and practices um, that really did reinforce, you know, racism and racial segregation that were coming from the city that actually I think are a a good case study, again, as I said, of what not to do and kind of how the city can function in a way that works better for everyone.
0: So taking that in in hand and thinking about, changes occurring, do we have, um, or is there a way that you or uh, people who are more informed along this line really talk with the city and with these different entities within the city, like the Housing Authority, to to look at at what has been done and and to become conscious of making it different and better?
1: Well, I personally have not, Um, been in conversation with the city, but I do know that this um, city did, um, I gave a talk at the University of Washington a couple weeks ago and folks from the city did come and film um, the talk and they have it on the Seattle channel, you know, and they have it on their website and I do hope that, you know, it's read by people in the city. I do, this is one of the things I think is important actually, is that um, city agencies become more aware of history and the history within their own kind of divisions, because I think that that could really help. I'm not currently aware of any kind of partnerships or, you know, anything that's happening along those lines which, concretely. And partly it's also because I don't live in Seattle anymore. Um, I live in, in uh, California, uh, much to my parents' dismay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's partly I'm just I'm not as connected with Seattle, but I do think you bring up an important point, which is um, city agencies, not just the Seattle, just everywhere. I see this mm-hmm. in in LA where I live too. It's so important that people who are leading these agencies are aware of the history of their own workplaces and of their particular, you know, urban planning division and housing authority divisions, because. That's one way I think that we can actually start changing things. But I have to say I haven't personally been involved in those conversations.
0: And I would wager to say that that it, this kind of thinking, openness, and having a, a, a true progressive mentality is not just, as you say, an L.A. situation or Seattle. I think it's all all of North America uh you know Canada and the US where there's just been this kind of history that we push back and we're just thinking about the present and the progress we've
1: made. Yeah, I you know you know that's so true and I actually think something I wanted to do in the book was to say like actually I think Seattle is not all that different from other cities, right? To kind of say in fact this is like yes Seattle has its own particular History and its own dynamics, and yet I actually think that it can also be a case study that's applicable to other cities as well. Because I think you're right. This is not just about Seattle. This goes beyond the city. This is North America. It extends to you know other regions as well. And I think that that's a really important point um, to make. And something that I hope people will um, take from the book. And I, I think it's you know. First, I directed at Seattle audiences um, because I it is a very Seattle specific book. And yet I think there's lessons there, um, you know, to other people who live in other cities like Seattle or, you know, like, you know, San Francisco, Portland, even places like New York, obviously, that have much different histories. And yet I think there's something that Seattle can offer. Maybe people will learn something new or a new way of thinking about their own city, even if it's not Seattle
0: precisely yes just like with any kind of literature we read we there are lessons that come forward here it's it's factual it's history that's gone on and yes it's kind of been different in different areas but still there are lessons to be learned and rather than you know think we're better than someone else or greater than someone just right. we're all a work in progress
1: yes Yes, I think, yeah, I hope that's, I, I absolutely agree. And I think there's something too about, I don't know, maybe I, I feel this sometimes in California as well, that, oh, we don't have problems when it comes to race. Like we're not, we're not a Southern, we're not a part of the South, right? It's like almost like, oh, racial problems are only a Southern thing, right? And I, you know, I think people have like moved away from that, which I'm glad, but there's still a little bit of like an undercurrent there of like, oh, You know, the 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 real racial problems are in the south. Like we don't really have them here—not serious ones, (laughs) right? Right, which is again, like, hopefully my book will help to dispel that and to help kind of show that there are certain things that you know I think all cities, certainly in this country, share. And but I will say one thing though, and I meant to say this earlier about history, is that one thing that I'm you know concerned about as someone who is a historian and I teach history at public university is this attack on history, you know, and on Mm. particular kinds of history. Yes, which I never thought I would see this, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it sounds naive, but I just didn't think that I would see some of this kind of suppression of certain kinds of topics and certain sort of disciplines and certain, you know, um, fields of thought. It's really disconcerting to me to see this happening. And I feel like in some ways, I'm you know, I teach in California, so I don't feel like I'm ever um, under threat of this. And yet I have colleagues teaching in states where certain topics are not allowed anymore in the public school system. And that to me is also really scary, but it also speaks to, I think, the power of, you know, history, particularly like critical history. And yet it's also scary because it's kind of under attack right now.
0: Yes. And I'm glad you've mentioned that because that really is very much a part of our day-to-day life across the country not necessarily here in Seattle specifically but that doesn't mean we should say oh well it'd never happen here because uh, right. yeah we just always need to be on guard and and certainly realize that a book such as this Seattle from the Margins could be something that in some areas people would say oh no we can't possibly have that book published
1: yeah, I know. I, I and I can't I never thought that I would see this. And so to me it just I don't know, it somehow strengthens my resolve mm. going forward to continue to just write the history that I think needs to be told. Right. And that comes from my own perspective, which is someone who is Japanese American and someone whose family was victimized by the government, who you know, who was forced to leave Seattle, was incarcerated without a trial. Everything was taken, you know, so I like I come from that perspective and I'll never stop kind of telling history from that perspective. Um, So in some ways, it like it strengthens my resolve to continue and to understand that it's ruffling feathers. It might be ruffling feathers. And yet I think that just speaks to how important this history is. And to really just stand with my colleagues, both at the university level and also K through 12, you know, teachers who are teaching within states right now that and they're facing a lot of suppression of what they can teach and a lot of demonization of teachers and public Mm. education, which is disturbing to me. And I I teach at a public university. There's so much value in that. And so I think it helps clarify, I think, for me, the stakes of critical history
0: and you write so beautifully and are so inquisitive about this that it's important that you use that that motivation and, and your talent to bring that across and to keep at it because that's what the world needs.
1: Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said that, <laughs> that the book was, was well-written because I really tried, you know, I come from academia. Mm. And in academia, we're taught that You know, it's a long process. We go through graduate school and training and, um, you know, I have a background, though, in public history. And I always felt like I wanted to write history that was more accessible to the public and that wasn't just going to be read within academia, which is often what we're taught in grad schools, like, well, this is going to be an academic book and you have to use academic language. And, you know, and I always just felt like that wasn't me. And so I worked really hard to, I think, write a book that I think is, you know, is complex. In terms of what I, some of the themes and topics that I address. And yet, I really wanted it to be not just an academic book. I wanted it to be accessible to people. Um, and so I'm so glad that you said that uh, because I think it, it was one of the things that I was really trying to do to take things that sometimes are only talked about in academia among a small group of people and really make it more accessible because that's also my background as a public historian. I worked at Den for years and that's really what we did is making the history accessible to broader audiences. And so I'm hopeful that the book does that as well.
0: I believe that it does. And we owe it to ourselves really to become this informed. It's an important history to recognize because we live here. It's part of us and The book is available now. You can get it at all your favorite bookstores. The library, too, is very dedicated to it. It has a lot of copies of it if you want to test it out first and then go get your own copy. So that's a great thing, right, Megan? And if people want to get more insight and connect with you, they can find
1: you on your website, true? Yes, my website, meganasakaphd.com. Um, so my website has a, like a contact info page where they can write a message and it'll come to me directly. I wouldn't wanted to say, too, I'm also doing a talk in Seattle December 3rd at the Seattle Public Library, the Central Branch. So I'll be speaking about the book then, and it'll be also a conversation with a, a local Seattle Times journalist.
0: Perfect. That is wonderful. And I'm appreciative of the fact that you've written this book, Megan, Seattle from the Margins. And thank you so greatly for taking time with us this morning.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Megan Asaka and Sunday Morning Magazine with Jared Munzer. find the podcast on our warm 106.9 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of savoring our time together, appreciating the gifts of the lives of all those who've come before us to give us the life we have.